Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by the Arizona Office of Tourism. This spring, follow your favorite baseball teams to Arizona for Cactus League spring training. Amazing weather and landscapes, exciting outdoor adventure, incredible food. Arizona is the perfect home base for baseball fans. Plan your spring training getaway at visitarizona.com slash spring training. Yes, that's visitarizona.com slash spring training. And now here's our show. Oh, there is no joy for senior baseball fans in southwest Florida today. The Fort Myers Sun Sox have stepped to the plate for the last time. The team folded this morning halfway through its second season. Wink Sports Director Ken Tomesh has been following the story all morning. Ken, what happened here? Well, Marisa, like almost everything in sports these days, senior baseball is a business as well as a game, and the business today just plain ran out of money. The Sun Sox had one more Christmas surprise waiting for them when they came back from their holiday break this morning, but this one was definitely not on anyone's wish list. The team packed it in and packed it up today, leaving the players out at home. I guess that's it. In fact, that is it for the Sun Sox, and most likely for Senior League Baseball, too. When players reported to Terry Park this morning, they were told the team had suspended operations. Many of them had gone home for Christmas vacation and were on their way to Daytona Beach, where the Sox were to play the Explorers tomorrow. That made for a quick round of phone calls. Dan Roan is up in Alpena, Michigan, and he was headed to the airport and had already left his home and uh, talked to his father, and his father was fortunately able to get a hold of him at the, at the airport and not have him come back. The big mystery on this day after Christmas is the Grinch who stole Michael Graham. No one knows exactly where the Sun Sox owner is, but reportedly a money dispute between Graham and two of his co-owners led to the team closing up shop this morning. Now that the Sox have folded and it looks like the Senior League will follow, the players are left feeling a lot like this deserted ballpark. Empty. It appalls me that they bring us down here to play, you know, to play baseball. I mean, they cut it down from three months to two months and... Uh, cut the salary caps and what have you, and we, we agreed to everything. We just want to have fun and play. I think all the players will be disappointed because, first of all, it was a lot of fun, mm -hmm. and it also gave players something to do when they were out of the game, and uh, we were hoping that it would continue, but it looks like it's not. Most of the players agree senior baseball was a good concept that just struck out. When the league was formed some 19 months ago, it was seen as a way for the boys of summer to enjoy some more winters in the sun. But the winters quickly turned to discontent as teams moved and folded and big-name players and fans stayed away. These guys' biggest complaint is the way the whole thing was handled. I don't blame them at all, you know, to say I can't lose that type of money, but don't start the season at all. Really? I mean, some of these guys took off their work, and now they have to go back and start it all over when, you know, in the middle of something that they thought was going to go to the end of January. Late this afternoon, league founder and president Jim Morley called an end to the 1990-91 season. A year and a half after it first stepped to the plate, it appears senior baseball has had its last at-bat. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Holy mackerel, how you doing? Folks, what's going on? My name's Tim Hanlon. Indeed, this is Good Seats Still Available. Yes, it is that curious little podcast uh, that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. We thank you for coming by and uh, let's get right into it, shall we? All right. That uh, clip should give you a hint. Uh, we're going to go back to uh, a topic that we haven't talked about for a long, long time. Uh, the one and a half year wonder that was the Senior Professional Baseball Association. Yeah, played in 1989 and 1990, and uh, that uh, little uh, 
little clip that you heard there was from our old pal, Ken Tomash, who was uh, one of our previous guests, episode 39. As a matter of fact, we we're talking about uh, his days as the uh, play-by-play man for the uh, Indiana Twisters of the uh, Continental Indoor Soccer League. But prior to that, Ken was a uh, baby cub reporter and anchor uh, in sports for uh, Wink TV down in Fort Myers, Florida. And uh, Fort Myers indeed was one of the uh, lucky cities that had a, a senior professional baseball league team called the Fort Myers Sun Sox. And, and the date that, that uh, we uh, spin the uh, Wayback Machine to is uh, December 26, 1990, when not only the uh, Sun Sox folded, but also the league itself after uh, trying to get a second season underway. And, and what was this SPBA, the Senior Professional Baseball Association? Well, as we'll learn, uh, this week uh, and uh, revisit this week with our uh, our pal Peter Golenbach, who wrote one of the uh, great books uh, about uh, the short-lived life of the uh, SPBA. Uh, and that book is called The Forever Boys. And uh, it was uh, uh, it came out after the league had actually folded. But uh, you may know Peter Golenbach as a prolific uh, sports writer, uh, especially in the sport of baseball, but not exclusively. Uh, this is the guy who helped uh, Sparky Lyle write the uh, explosive book, The Bronx Zoo, uh, back in the late 70s, uh, during the time, 1978, I think, as a matter of fact, uh, when the Yankees were, uh, you know, it was an amazing time to be in New York, the Bronx, uh, world championships, uh, you had the city of New York crumbling and and, and burning and, and blackouts and all kinds of stuff. And the Bronx Zoo was, uh, uh, I don't know it was emblematic, but it was certainly a microcosm, I guess, of uh, the world writ large around uh, New York City and Bronx in particular. Uh, he also co-wrote or, or helped write uh, for Billy Martin his autobiography called Number One. Uh, you may remember uh, Peter's uh, quintessential book and his first real sort of debut on the uh, on the sports writing scene called Dynasty, which was the sort of oral history of the New York Yankees from Uh, Their time from 1949 through 64. Bums, the oral history of the Brooklyn Dodgers, personal fouls, a very controversial book at the time, uh, looking at the uh, the championship season and uh, the sort of building of and the maybe demise of uh, North Carolina State uh, basketball, NCAA, but and lots and lots of stuff. American Zoom and NASCAR, all kinds of great stuff. Peter Golenbach, look him up. Uh, If you haven't read a couple of his works already, I'd be surprised. Uh, but uh, we're going to get into the uh, the book that he issued in uh, late. No, sorry. Was, I think it was, it was the spring of 1990, just after this thing called the Senior Professional Baseball Association folded. And and it's a great book forever, boys. It, it follows the season, the inaugural season uh, of a team called the St. Petersburg Pelicans. And they were one of the uh, eight or so teams. And we'll get into sort of the intricacies of it. There was a, there was a first year and then there was sort of half of a second year and, and all that stuff. But it's a great conversation. And, and it's a it's a league uh, and a story that is just uh, it's uh, too kind of hard to believe. But, you know, what was it? It was uh, the opportunity for uh, players uh, in professional baseball to kind of keep going uh, the uh, the ability to, uh, you know, kind of elongate their careers and uh, and frankly, give fans uh, uh, some excitement uh, in the process to do so. And for a while, it was uh, not only a great idea, but uh, it was just a, a fun and uh, and and just enthralling opportunity to see. I mean, frankly, some of the best uh, players of their day uh, continue to uh 
to make a go out of it. I mean, you're talking about literally the the best players and best known names. And in particular, in the Pelicans, uh, you had uh, guys like Pat Zachary and, and Bill Spaceman Lee and Ron LaFleur, uh, Jim Rice for a half a season, John Matlock, Doc Ellis. I mean, uh, just an amazing Alan Bannister, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, players, Lenny Randall. I mean, and, you know, you had all kinds of uh, uh, players from from Major League Baseball who, frankly, had some had some gas still in the tank, uh, but also, frankly, were trying to extend their careers or, frankly, just, you know, continuing for the love of the game to play uh, baseball, uh, given uh, a renewed and uh, extended opportunity uh, to do so. And it's a fascinating story. We, we uh, did uh, certainly uh, talk about the SPBA with... Um, our previous conversation with David Whitford, uh, who wrote the book Extra Innings, uh, and uh, we urge you to listen to this podcast in conjunction with that one. You can look that up on uh, GoodSeatStillAvailable.com or just uh, look it up in your uh, your podcast feed. And that was a great conversation. And David and Peter Golenbach were the two guys who kind of are the, the, the real chronicles or chroniclers of this oft-forgotten league known as the Senior Professional Baseball Association. We're going to get into it. Uh, if you will, as sort of as a part two uh, of our exploration of that interesting time in that league in 1989 and 1990, briefly, the SPBA with Peter Golenbach, uh, our uh, our new pal and uh, a great guest and a conversation coming up in just a few moments time. We want to, uh, before getting there, uh, remind you one of our great sponsors is Streaker Sports and uh, StreakerSports.com is the place to go. And of course, they consider themselves, and rightly so, the purveyor of sports culture. That's trademarked. By all means, don't uh, don't be uh, uh, you know utilizing that trademark. It's theirs. Streakersports.com, where we've got a promo code for you. It's good seats for ten percent off all of your purchases. Uh, really amazing stuff. It's been a while since we've uh, promoted them on the show, but are you interested in Caddyshack? Well, they've got the Caddy Collection. Uh, if you're interested in the fortieth anniversary of the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team uh, successes. How about some caricature tees, shirts, uh, that is. Uh, Mike Rosioni and Jim Craig, they're officially licensed. Fantastic shirts. Give them a try. But, you know, I suspect in addition to all that kind of stuff and more, uh, you will be enthralled as we are and continue to be with their defunct league's collection of shirts. It's Probably the most comprehensive and well-crafted collection of shirts devoted to various defunct leagues uh, and the stuff that we obsess about on this show. And for God's sakes, if you really want to prove your love for the teams of yore that uh, just uh, cannot escape your memories uh, and you want to uh, remember uh, in in classic and beautiful and well-crafted, designed to last T-shirt form, you could do worse by going then to streakersports.com. Uh, and uh, and using that promo code, good seats. We're talking about the ABA. We're talking about the USFL. We're talking about Roller Hockey International or even Pro Beach Hockey, for that matter, if you like the roller version of the hockey. How about WHA? A little bit more classic ice hockey oriented. We got, They got that, too. How about the WFL? You bet. They've got shirts devoted to the World Football League. Uh, the major indoor lacrosse league, that original version of what is now the NLL, the National Lacrosse League. And of course, perhaps our favorite, but you know, why why choose favorites, right? They're kind of like your kids, uh, but you know, maybe amongst uh, the, the the best among equals, 
the North American Soccer League collection. All of those leagues represented in comprehensive and quality form in great T-shirts. All of yours to choose from, from the great folks at StreakerSports.com. Check them out. I guarantee you're going to find something or some things that you're going to absolutely love and you will just not believe exists. We love Streaker Sports and we love you for checking them out. Again, at StreakerSports.com, using the promo code GOODSEATS, GOODSEATS, that's the promo code, forget 10% off all of your purchases. We thank Streaker Sports for their sponsorship of said show called Good Seats Still Available. And here we go. Let's get into our chat, our fun conversation with our pal Peter Golenbach as we go back, way back into the 1989 and 1990 half seasons of this thing called the Senior Professional Baseball Association. Here's our conversation. And please, as always, enjoy. Give us a sense of uh, of your story leading up to where we're going to get to. You're uh, you're a law school graduate, of course, but you you're a, you're a sports writer and and prodigious book writer by trade. Maybe you can give a, our, our audience a sense of the kinds of stories that you've uh, spent your your career focused on. Well, sure. I mean, it it how it happened was fairly miraculous uh, to begin with. I, I was the sports editor of the Daily Dartmouth newspaper at Dartmouth, which was more fun that you could than you could ever imagine. Um, I also managed to write Dartmouth sports for the New York Times, the Boston Globe, which was a lot of fun. So um, as a student, I was actually getting paid. You know, the New York Times paid me $5 an article, which was a lot of fun. And I went from, I went from Dartmouth to NYU Law School um, at NYU Law School, uh, I had a classmate by the name of Sally Gold, who had gone to the University of North Dakota. And one of her good friends was a fellow by the name of Phil Jackson. And she introduced me to Phil. And so I sort of, um, I, I had gotten credentials to cover New York sports from the Stanford Advocate. I grew up in Stanford. And uh, a friend of mine was a sports editor. So I said to him, look, if you give me credentials to the Knicks, the Rangers, the Yankees, the Mets, um, all the New York sports, the the, the Jets, uh, I'll give you free articles. I'll write you free articles. And that was the deal. And I did that all through law school. So I got, I got to interview people like Joe Namath and O.J. Simpson. Um, I got to become very close friends with Phil Jackson. I spent a lot of time in Madison Square Garden and at Yankee Stadium. Uh, so I graduated from from NYU Law School, and I had a job. My first job was working for Friedman and Fishman in, in law firm, and I worked there six weeks because <laughs> they had they had given me a stack of cases, and my job was to go through the cases and tell them what they had. Well, I discovered that among the cases, six of those cases, which was, you know, falling on the sidewalk, there were tort cases. Six of the statute, the six-year statute of limitations had run, which means they hadn't bothered to look at these things for more than six years. And so I took these things to, to Mr. Friedman, and I said, look, you know, you've got these cases, and I don't know what you're going to do, 
but the statute of limitations is run. And he said to me, he says, okay, call these guys on the phone, call these people on the phone, tell them why they don't have a case. At which point I said, thank you, sir, I quit. And that was my law career right there. So I then opened up the New York Times and there was an ad for a writer slash lawyer. And I called the number and it was Prentice Hall in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. And they wanted somebody to write the weekly reports on President Nixon's wage and price controls. This was the summer of 1972. And so I started doing that. And I lasted at that job for six weeks. Apparently my job quotient was about six weeks uh, because I discovered that when anybody wanted to raise the prices of things, they found reasons to allow them to do it. But whenever the workers wanted their salaries raised, uh, the Nixon administration figured out ways not to let them do it. So it was kind of a, to me, it was sort of a scam. And I was sort of writing about this sort of cloaked, you know, obviously I couldn't be too blatant about it. And my opinions were not what they wanted. They wanted what the rules and regulations were and what they meant. But about six weeks into it, I found a catalog of Prentice Hall's trade books. And that included a one, a two by Lawrence Welk. Uh, and there was a bank robber who wrote a, a book, famous bank, bank robber wrote a book, Where the Money Is. That's the name of the title of the book. Those were, he was a bank robber. And um, as a kid, I had become enamored of the New York Yankees. Uh, I had read a book called The New York Yankees by Frank Graham as a 12, 13-year-old, and I must have read that book you know, 20 times. And what I wanted to do, the book was, was published in either 46 or 48, but when I was growing up as a Yankee fan from the years 1949 to 1964, which was 16 years, 14 pennants, nine world championships for the Yankees. So I want I wanted to write a sequel to The New York Yankees by Frank Graham. So on a whim, I went downstairs and knocked on the door of the head of the trade book division at Prentice Hall. Uh, his name, I found out, was Nick Dincheco. And I went to see him, and I pitched him this idea. And he said to me, go and write me a proposal. So one of the things I did is I wrote down during those 16 years how many fans the Yankees had in Yankee Stadium each of those years. And I, my argument was if you can sell um, books to 1% of these fans, you will have a big bestseller. And believe it or not, he bought it. He bought it. He gave me 2500 bucks and he said, go write your book. Meanwhile, I had gone to the Yankees. Marty Appel was the assistant PR guy. Sure. And I said, do you know Marty? No, name. Very uh, very uh, familiar to uh, sports fans of uh, of yore, for sure, in New York. Yeah. Well, uh, he, he was about 12 years old at the time. He was the assistant PR director of the Yankees. And I told him what I wanted to do. He said, if you can get a book contract, uh, by all means, we will let you use the uh, files. The Yankees had wonderful, wonderful files. Um, to help you write your book. He said, but of course, you'll never get a book contract. Um, That just doesn't happen. 
Well, I did get a book contract. And when I went to Marty and I told him I had gotten one, he said, fine, you know, come and, you know, use our files and, and start doing your research. And so from August, September, October, November, December, I'm sitting in Yankee Stadium doing my research and becoming very close to all the people at the Yankees. I mean, this, this was the Mike Burke Yankees. And these were just the most wonderful, wonderful people and very, very close friends of mine. And so so sometimes it was funny. Uh, they would go to lunch and the phone would ring and I would pick it up and go, New York Yankees, you know, and, you know, take messages for them. I, I had sort of become part of their family. Um, and they had given me, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, you know, pushing me to do this thing. Uh, at any rate, at the time uh, it came to me to write it, it I, I became convinced that you cannot write a book based on newspaper clippings. So I decided what I ought to do certainly is go interview all these people. And uh, Mike Burke wrote me a letter to the to whom it may concern. Peter Golenbach is writing this book on the Yankees. Please give him your full cooperation. And they gave me the telephone numbers and the addresses of all the Yankees who played from 1949 to 1964. And I went back to Nick Denchico and I said, look, you know, you give me $2,500, but I have to go interview these players. Can you give me 2500 more? And he did. And I started interviewing these players and he gave me another 2500 and another 2500 till I interviewed the players I needed to interview. And... Uh, spent a year writing it and it was dynasty. The book was dynasty. Um, the New York Yankees from 1949 to 1964. It's still in print all these years later. And a seminal work. And, and, and frankly, uh, a hint of, uh, what, uh, became almost sort of a, a semi trademark of yours, sort of the oral history kind of approach. Uh, well, you know, yeah. the thing that I enjoyed most about it, was meeting these people and talking to them. You know, an opportunity to have Mickey Mantle tell you about his 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 nightmares. I mean, that that's just unbelievable. To have Roger Maris talk about how badly he was treated by Ralph Houck. I mean, who gets a chance to do that? And 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 so obviously, you know, after after the success of Dynasty, uh, and I'll get to the Bronx Zoo and number one in a minute. But after the success of Dynasty, I thought to myself, yeah, wouldn't it be fun to do this with the Boston Red Sox, the Chicago Cubs, the St. Louis Cardinals and Browns, the New York Mets, and the Dallas Cowboys, for that matter. I, I, I did a football book in that, in that vein. And uh, then what happened is that Barnes & Noble, damn Barnes & Noble, um, started putting its chain of bookstores all across the country, and they started putting out of business the independent bookstores. And see, if as long as you had independent bookstores, for instance, I could do a book on the Chicago Cubs, and the 30 independent bookstores would each uh, put 100 books in their bookstore, and I, I could sell enough books to make it worth their while. But once Barnes & Noble put them all out of business, Barnes & Noble stores each took two books. And so no longer could I write team histories because people in California and, and Florida and, and uh, Minnesota had no interest in the Chicago Cubs. So I couldn't do that anymore, which was a shame. But we go back to Dynasty, going all the way back, back to Dynasty. Um, after Dynasty, I got a job working 
for the Bergen Record in Hackensack, New Jersey. Ah, uh, yes, my, my hometown newspaper from where I grew up in Bergen County. Yes, unbelievable. There you go. There you go. And my goal, quite frankly, I was going to be um, a, a journalist for the rest of my life. That was my goal. Uh, Dynasty was wonderful. It was going to be the only book I was ever going to write. But I was going to work for the Bergen Record, and I knew in two or three years I wouldn't end up at the New York Times. That was my ultimate goal. I've always loved the New York Times. Um, and so so I was headed in that direction. I was the assistant night news editor at the Bergen Record when I got a call from a fellow by the name of Doug Newton. And Doug Newton was Billy Martin's agent. And I had written in Dynasty that Billy Martin was as important to the Yankees as Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford. So naturally, when Billy Martin wanted to write his autobiography, who did he want to do it? He wanted the guy who said that he was as important as Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford. So I, that, that's, that's the thing that changed my life. And then when it turned out that Billy needed a year, you know, waited a year, he wasn't quite ready to do it, Doug Newton had one other client. And that was the relief pitcher, Sparky Lyle. And so he said, do you want to do a book with Sparky? And I said, well, I don't know. Does anybody care about what Sparky has to say? And Doug Newton was smart enough to say to me, look, go down to Fort Lauderdale and meet with Sparky and talk to him. And sure enough, I went down to Fort Lauderdale and I'm sitting in the clubhouse, the Yankee clubhouse with Sparky and Greg Nettles, and Thurman Munson, and Reggie Jackson, and Billy Martin, and Steinbrenner's floating around upstairs. And I thought to myself, if Sparky would keep a diary of this 1978 season, we just might have something. And what I didn't know was that Sparky was really sort of angry, because the Yankees over the winter had traded for... Um, for Goose Gossage and given Gossage $2 million. And Sparky was making 140000 And he had just been the Cy Young Award winner. So we started, Sparky and I, and uh, we wrote about everything that happened and all the experiences that Sparky had and what was going on between Billy Martin and Reggie Jackson and Steinbrenner. And when the thing came out, it was like a bomb. It was like a bomb struck <laughs> struck New York. Oh, it was it was explosive. <laughs> I remember growing up as a kid at the time, and it was and 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 you know a confluence. Not just not only the the writing in the book and 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 your you know ability to, to convey that story, but also I mean a tempestuous time not only in the clubhouse but but writ large in New York and the Bronx in 1978 and New York City and and it just you know it's a, a cosmic. Uh, uh, event of, of you know of, of things that uh, it was cosmic it was a right. match right this was a match of, of other uh, to other oh. things oh my gosh i mean i said to sparky i said sparky i want you to realize when this thing comes out uh, it's it's going to be like an atomic bomb and he said to me ah oh, come on who who cares what i have to say i said sparky just do me a favor don't duck when it comes out well, for about the first three days, Sparky ducked. I mean, he scared the hell out of him. But eventually he came back, and, and we must have done TV and radio for the next three weeks. And the thing got to be number two on the Times bestseller list. The only reason we weren't number one was the Scarsdale Diet, 
which if you remember, was one of the biggest books that was ever written. Uh, but we got to be number two, and we were on the Times list for about, I don't know, 16 weeks. It was it was amazing. It was it was absolutely amazing. It really was. So what is it? What was it about baseball? Because obviously a lot of your just just raft of of, of great work has been focused on various aspects of the sport. I mean, I look, I'm a big fan of American Zoom on the NASCAR front. I've had that on my shelf for for years. And you've done some other other sports and, and other oh, that, that that that's a whole uh, that's a whole other story. That that was an amazing thing in and of itself. American Zoom is still the biggest selling uh NASCAR racing book that was ever written. And how that happened, you know, that's that's a discussion for another day. NASCAR was so big until Dale Earnhardt was killed in that race in 2001. And then all of a sudden, no publisher would publish a race car book anymore. That's another thing that disappeared, if you've noticed. Well, it's certainly tragic as we're recording this, given uh, the uh, the horrific crash that, that happened oh. yesterday, oh, the Daytona 500. Yeah. But 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 back up, but give me a sense, though, about baseball, right? Because baseball certainly became somewhat of a specialty of yours. In particular, first-person narratives either sort of aiding people in – in speaking in their own voice and in a, in a literary way, or frankly, oral history, just generally, uh, what, what is it about this sport of baseball? And maybe we'll finally get to the, uh, the forever. Point. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but what is it about? I mean, your childhood interest, right. Kind of was the spark, but it also became kind of somewhat of a specialty for, you know? Well, I was, I was born with the baseball gene. I was born with a glove and a bat and a ball. I mean, my whole life. And I grew up in Stamford, Connecticut, which was a sort of a stone's throw from Yankee Stadium. And I had the opportunity, mostly on television, to listen to, you know, Mel Allen um, and watch, you know, all those all those stars from that dynasty era. Mickey Mantle, you should see what my office looks like. I've got, you know, paintings of Mickey Mantle and um, a, a 10-foot you know, picture of him that used to be on the on the stadium wall. I've got Mickey Mantle's ads for Mickey Mantle's gloves. Um, I don't know. The, Yankee fans of a certain era, to those Yankee fans, there was only one, you know, glorious ball player, and that was Mantle. And, and we just all loved him. We just did. And And the other thing, of course, is that every year we won. I mean, how can you get around that? I mean, when you when you grow up and you know that your baseball team that you love with all your heart is going to win the pennant every year, just about. I mean, you just you just feel that you're. What do they say? You know, you're you're standing on third base. You got a spoon in your mouth, but you think you've hit a triple, something like that. I mean, it's it's just you you just feel that you're empowered because of that. And like I said, when I was 13 years old and I read that history of the Yankees, I was just enthralled, absolutely enthralled. And, uh, you know, once once you get to um, meet these people and, and get to know them as people, uh, you love them even more. You know, I went to see, you know, every one of them, Tony Kubek and Bobby Richardson and Cleet Boyer. I, I, went, uh, I, I went to Cleet Boyer's uh, sort of redneck bar down in Atlanta. Uh, he told me to meet him at nine o'clock in the morning at his bar. And I showed up at nine o'clock and I'm sitting there drinking coffee while all the 
ex-high school football players with you know various injuries are sitting there drinking beer. And I sat there until uh, basically 9 o'clock at night. Cleet showed up at 9 o'clock at night. I sat there for 12 hours waiting for him. And he finally showed up, and he showed up with Roger Maris. I mean, it was amazing. It was just amazing. And Roger, I'm sitting with Roger at the table. I had written to Roger. I called Roger. I wanted Roger desperately, and Roger avoided me like a plague. But after about 15 minutes sitting there at the table with Roger, Roger said to me, okay, let's go outside and talk. And he gave me one of the great interviews of the book, of the, of the Dynasty book. And it was one of the last interviews that he gave. Um, he died, I think, in 84. Um, so the experience is just fantastic. So why would you not, why would one not want to, you know, continue that experience? Which I did. You know, I've got 250, 300 tapes of all of these interviews here in my house. That's amazing. I, well, so, so then let's fast forward to the late 80s then and, and maybe okay. a, a story of how how you go from chronicling, you know, teams like, you know, legendary teams like the Dodgers and the Yankees and and, yeah. and autobiographical uh, explosives like uh, like the Bronx Zoo into right. this experiment, I guess, or this unique sort of thing called the Senior Professional Baseball Association. How does that come about? Is that your idea, somebody else's idea? Give us some of the hows and what's of sort of well, how something I mean, like that gets in your radar. Life life is a very, very funny thing. I mean, if going back to Dynasty, what if Nick Tencheco had been a Red Sox fan? Would I have ever gotten a book contract? I don't know. And the same way, one day, I lived in Richfield, Connecticut at the time. And one day, I went into town to have breakfast. And that day, I bought a copy of USA Today which is something I didn't usually do because I got the New York Times um, in the mail every day or, you know, on my doorstep. I didn't usually get USA Today, but I did this particular day and I opened up to the sports section and there's about a two inch column in USA Today. And it talks about a meeting of the owners of the senior league. The senior professional baseball league are going to meet at the Breakers Hotel in Palm Beach on such and such a date. And it says the, the founder of the league, a man by the name of Jim Morley, is looking for ball players. And if you're a ball player who wants to play in the senior league, call this number. Okay? I got on the phone. I called Morley. I said, look, this sounds really terrific. Uh, guys who are retired, you got to be 35 years old, to be in the league. You can't be younger. So these are retired, former professional baseball players. And it's like senior golf. It's a chance for them to play again. And I thought, oh, what a fabulous, fabulous opportunity this is going to be for those guys. And I called Morley and he said, oh, by all means, come on down to our meeting and uh, pick the team you want to, you know, write about. And, And I did. Down I flew to Palm Beach, went to the meeting. I'm sitting there with all the owners. And at the end of the time, I thought to myself, the team I really want to write about is the West Palm Beach Tropics, which was owned by the current owner of the of the Red Sox, John Henry. John Henry owned the West Palm Beach Tropics, another guy who just loved, loved baseball. So Dick Williams was going to be their manager. Dave Kingman uh, was the left fielder on the team. Uh, he was a star, and they had other stars as well. Uh, it was a, a, a nice-looking team. 
So they said, okay, you can do it. And I proceeded to put down uh, $1,000 down payment on a house on Fisher Island near uh, Palm Beach. Uh, And I go back to my hotel and I get a telephone call. And it's the PR guy from the West Palm Beach Tropics. And it turns out he was a friend of Jim Valvano's. And I had written a book called Personal Fouls, which had gotten Valvano fired. So he calls and says, we've changed our mind. We don't want you. We don't want you covering our team. So I'm in a state of panic because I had gotten a contract to write a book about this. And so I called Jim Morley, who was the founder of the league. And Morley said to me, look, I own the St. Pete Pelicans. You're more than welcome to come and write this book about the St. Pete Pelicans. So I went, woof, boy, I'm saved on this one. And so on October 31st, 1989, uh, I drove um, with wife, two-year-old son, uh, two dogs to St. Petersburg, Florida. And I'm driving across the Bayway, and there is the beautiful Don Cesar Hotel. And the sun is going down, and it's 75 degrees. And I thought to myself, my gosh, this must be what heaven is like. And so the next day, I went to the clubhouse where the St. Pete Pelicans were meeting. And uh, Bobby Tolan, who was the manager, he says, "Uh, Peter, we have a problem. Oh, boy, what's the problem? So I sit down, and Tolan begins to tell me that the players are really not sure they want to have some guy hanging around them, nosing into their business, um, you know, reporting on what they're doing. (laughs) And Doc Ellis, who's about six foot six, is this wonderful character who became a very close friend of mine. He's walking around my chair and he's chanting, loser, writer, loser, writer, loser, writer. So, He's trying to rattle me, but he can't rattle me because I have a job to do, which is to convince these guys to let me stay. So Tolan says, I'll tell you what, we're going to have a team meeting. You come out and you tell them what you're doing and see if they'll let you stay. So I went out there with all these former Major League Baseball players, and I proceeded to tell them exactly how I felt, which was the fact that this was their opportunity to play the game they loved again. And that's what this book is going to be about. The love of the game and, and, and just, you know, your life stories. And I told them, if anybody wants to see what I'm writing about you, you're more than welcome. And at the end of the meeting, nobody said a word. So I'm thinking to myself, should I get on the bus tomorrow? Am I okay? Well, I didn't have any choice. You know, if you're going to do this, you're going to get on the bus. Our first game was in uh, Winter Haven against the Winter Haven Super Sox. And I I packed my suitcase with my uh, tape recorder and and my notes and so forth and so on. And I got on the bus and nobody said a word. It was like, hello, 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 hello. I sat in the back of the bus and we went to New Haven and... um, these fellas and I became very, very close over the next three, four months. And we won the one and only Senior Professional League Championship. 
All right, what's this? The Arizona Office of Tourism Spring Training. Oh, my God. Hey, this spring, follow your favorite baseball teams to Arizona for Cactus League Spring Training. Amazing weather and landscapes, exciting outdoor adventure, incredible food, Arizona. It's the perfect home base for baseball fans. Follow your favorite baseball teams to Arizona for Cactus League Spring Training. 10 stadiums, 15 Major League Baseball teams, and 75-degree temperatures. Ah, awesome. And all 10 stadiums are in the greater Phoenix area, all within 50 miles of the city. Meet players, get autographs before the games, and just enjoy an old-fashioned ballpark experience in beautiful preseason weather down in Arizona. Check out amazing restaurants and bars nearby, including tons of craft breweries like Four Peaks, Angel's Trumpet Ale House, and Goldwater Brewing Company. Enjoy live music from local and national artists and explore museums featuring everything from native heritage to modern art to musical instruments from around the world and more. Arizona is known for its incredible landscapes too, as well as thrilling outdoor adventures. So hit the road and explore Arizona's urban centers or ghost towns or artsy communities or quirky outposts. You can hike, you can bike, you can take Jeep tours, hot air balloon rides, skydiving, jet skiing, or just taking in a good old-fashioned sunset. No matter what you love to do, Arizona has you covered. Check out must-see destinations from your bucket list like the Grand Canyon, Monument Valley, Horseshoe Bend, and even the great Old West City of Tucson. Bringing the kids along for spring training? Hey, Arizona's a fantastic destination for families, too. Family-friendly resorts and hotels offer plenty of fun for kids of all ages, from water parks to horseback rides to games and activities. Arizona also has tons of stuff for kids to do and see, like wildlife parks and science museums, aquariums, and even dude ranches. So what are you waiting for? Plan now for your spring training getaway at visitarizona.com slash spring training. That's visitarizona.com slash spring training. Hey, and don't forget, send us a postcard. With that premise... Right. Is that what unfolded as you as the season went on, that sort of noble last chance to tell your story, the love of the game? It didn't fully turn out that way in terms of what you produced as a book. Right. There was some some dark and and not so happy sort of thoughts in there, too. Well, again, it, it comes down to interviewing people and and they saw that I had a genuine interest in their lives. And whatever's in that book is what they told me. It wasn't anything that I dug up. This was all material that they told me as I interviewed them. I, I interviewed almost every one of these players for an hour, hour and a half, sometimes two. And they were very open and honest and wonderful. And give us, give, just for our audience, give, give us uh, some of the names. These are some, some legendary names of, of the 70s and 80s that were now on this team. Well, without a doubt. I mean, the the most valuable player in the league was Stevie Henderson, who had been with the Mets. Yeah, Yvonne de Jesus was was a star player. I'll tell you about Butch Menton in a, in a minute. Kenny Landro was our center fielder. We had both Rasich brothers, Dave Rasich. Gary was the first baseman. Dave was the pitcher. Uh, we had uh, Steve Kemp, who was with uh, the Yankees and other teams. Bobby Tolan was our manager. Uh, Pat Zachary who had pitched for Texas, a wonderful guy who became a good friend. Lamar Johnson, 
Dick Bosman, who had pitched a no-hitter for the uh, Oakland A's, pitched for the Washington Senators. Uh, Randy Lurch, who was a Philadelphia Philly for a while. Uh, one of our catchers was Dwight Lowry. Milt Wilcox, who was a fabulous pitcher for the Detroit Tigers. Doc Ellis, of course. Roy Howe, who was a star third baseman for the Toronto Blue Jays. John Matlack, who was a star for the Mets, had been a star for the Mets. Uh, catcher, we had Ozzie Virgil Jr. as well. I mean, we. Uh, it turned out that Tolan, Bobby Tolan, who was a wonderful, wonderful manager, what he wanted to do was win. See, there were other teams, for instance, the Winter Haven Super Sox. Uh, the owner of Winter Haven decided that what he wanted to do was collect old Boston Red Sox players. Winter Haven had always been the Red Sox uh, spring training place. So he thought if he got old Red Sox, they would draw a lot of fans that way. The problem was a lot of those Boston Red Sox players were too old. So they really couldn't compete against the young guys that the, the, the St. Pete Pelicans and the West Palm Beach Tropics had. The same thing with the Mets team. The Mets team was in, in uh, St. Lucie. Um, they had a lot of Mets. But some of those Mets players were 50, 50 years old. And they just they just couldn't play. Tolan wanted talent. He wanted young talent, and he and Doc Ellis accumulated this young talent, and uh, you know put together a, quite a terrific team, including, by the way, a, a key Red Sox player, Jim Rice. The second year. Uh, the second. The second year. The second year they had Rice, and the shame of it, the shame of it was in the middle of the second year on Christmas Day the league folded. Right. Uh, in the first year, at the end of the season, towards the end of the season, the owner of the Orlando team disappeared. He had uh, stolen $13 million from the Detroit mob, and he disappeared, which put a financial burden on the rest of the team. And then the second year, I guess it was Christmas Day, the team from Fort Myers had two owners. One of the owners... Uh, the very wealthy family from Delaware. Not the DuPont. Yes. Ah, there you DuPont. are. Yeah, DuPont. One of them was a DuPont, and the other one was a Coke addict. <laughs> and the DuPont <laughs> discovered the that the Coke... Right Coke yeah, well, he discovered that the other guy was putting Coke up his nose and costing him a lot of money. And at that point, he said, I'm done. I quit. And at the point he said that, the league could not survive, and it was over which was a damn shame because it was wonderful. Um, the problem that they had, at least the way I understood it, was that with eight teams in Florida, you apparently couldn't get national sponsors because it was only played in one state. It was only played in Florida. So the second year they decided to move one of the teams to California and move one of the other teams to Arizona to make it a national team so that they could get um, more national sponsors. But unfortunately, you know, once the, uh, once that, that Fort Myers team folded, you know, the airfare was too expensive and the whole thing just collapsed, which was a shame because the league was wonderful. It really was. It was, it was better than triple a quality baseball. And the other thing that was so wonderful about it is it gave these guys the opportunity to resume the life that they loved so much. 
But it also came with, and and as you elegantly uh, recount it in this book, it, you it also comes with some really uh, you know searing understanding, I guess, of of what one sacrifices for the love of the game. Frankly, for extending one's career, right? Arguably, not at the same sort of level of of, of uh, adoration, nor certainly uh, compensation. There are sacrifices that come with that, right? And and to, to continue versus, say, moving on with your life per se or, you know, or extending one's uh, career uh, in the twilight. I mean, for every, you know, uh, wonderful moment or two, I, I got to think there was also a bit of wistfulness. And frankly, the body's not necessarily keeping up with the demands of the game either, right? Well, because everybody was playing under the same rules, which is to say you had to be older than 35, uh, some people, the younger ones especially, did very, very well. Uh, If you were 50 years old, uh, you were not going to do very well and you were not going to last very long. And some of these team owners discovered that very quickly, that this, you know, I had the sense with the Red Sox, for instance, uh, they they made uh, Bill Lee the manager, at least for the first week, you know, and, and he was pitching and he was playing a little right field and he was fooling around with the lineup. Well, the, the St. Pete Pelicans were dead serious about winning games. I mean, dead serious. And very quickly, all those, you know, team owners who thought that this was a lark very quickly figured out that this wasn't a lark. This was serious baseball. And that was neat to see. It was. I mean, professional baseball players are very, very interesting people, not only physically, of course, but psychologically as well. You've got to be tough as a son of a gun to be able to play a major league in in the major leagues. Very, very special people end up in the major leagues. Well, how did did all those players feel sort of rekindling that i mean did they feel like this was sort of major league junior or or you know no okay not at all no no this was this was i mean this was the best that they could do this was this was you know back to playing against other major leaguers again this was a big deal and they just had a wonderful wonderful time doing it they were thrilled to be able to do it I mean, as you saw in the book, there were a couple of guys who had problems emotionally. A couple of them had drug problems, you know, that uh, certain things in your lives that you just can't control. But I mean, it's interesting. If you watch major major leaguers, you saw uh, a fellow yesterday. Uh, I can't remember what team he was from, but he's suspended for 80 games for taking steroids. I mean, certain guys just get in trouble. And we had guys like that too. Give me a sense of of of, of sort of the the day to day, right? So you're traveling across Florida. I'm guessing a lot of bus travel and and accommodations, maybe not sort of being sort of at the highest level. And and frankly, how about the fans and and how many fans and and what was All the right. spirit of in the game in the in the stadiums and and whatnot? I mean, because this is no doubt a curiosity as much as it is an extension of being able to play baseball at a pro level. Yeah, but as, as the season went along, it was four months. As the season went along, the, the interest build, built. Uh, we were taking the you know best, best buses available. We were staying in the best hotels available on the road. This was not a nickel and dime operation. And some of these guys were getting you know very good money. 
at least the first year they were. But more than the money, it was the opportunity to compete against the major leaguers again. And in St. Petersburg, we were, I don't know, I think we were averaging 800, 900 people a game, something like that. And as the, the season went along, as as I was the radio guy. I was one of the two radio guys. Jack Weirs, who had been the play by a play-by-play uh, broadcaster for the Baltimore Orioles, uh, he was paid to do the play-by-play. And I, who was so grateful just to have the opportunity to be with these guys, uh, during the games, I was the color commentator on the radio shows. And from uh, 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock at night on the radio, we had the highest rated show in all of Tampa Bay. We had a lot of listeners, a lot of listeners. And um, the fans loved us. They just did. And I'm sure that was true in the other, in the other towns as well. You know, there was some very, very, you know, if the, the temperature was right and the, if it was a weekend, for instance, we got very good crowds. Do, give, give me a sense, though, of of the finances and the because I, I, I can't imagine it was it was simply the Orlando owner situation that sort of, you know, imploded the whole thing. I mean, you're mentioning well, expansion and all that kind of stuff, right? I, revenues. And, and when did you sort of see that? You know, this might not necessarily last for a long period of time, or, or did you not even sense that as you were sort of focusing on this story and this team? I was whacked on the head with a, with a with a, with an oar, the same as all the players on the day they announced that the thing was folding. We had no idea, no clue, no clue at all. It was out of the blue. It was terrible. Interesting. Christmas. And, and, yeah. and no, no, no real sense of it, right? I mean, I, the fact that they were... No, none at all. Don't forget, all the owners of all these teams were very wealthy men. I mean, look at John Henry. John Henry's a billionaire right now. He was the owner of the West Palm Beach Tropics. See, the, the, one, thing, the one thing Jim Morley didn't want to do, Morley and I became close, so we, we, we talked a lot too. He was afraid that if he got too rich in ownership, that if four or five of them got together, they could somehow take the league away from him because he was not wealthy. He didn't have to pay for his franchise. He had enough money to run it, but he was not as wealthy as some of the other guys who who were involved. In fact, he had sold a piece of his team at the end of the first year to a, a fellow from Texas, but they didn't have enough money to last once the Orlando guy went under and the Fort Myers guy quit. They just couldn't see to go from there. I don't know the details of it. I just was with the players, you know, like everybody else. When the announcement came, no game today. Everybody go home. Give me, give me a sense of what the players felt when that happened. They felt the same thing I felt. It was, it was, it was a stunning, stunning announcement. It's like what, the, you know? And then at that point, what are you going to do? There's nothing you can do. I believe they gave the players the money to fly home. Well, in some respect, though, it also it, it's it, it you said to whack by like a two by four or an order the head. Yeah, I mean yeah. the reality is that 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 really is a reality check because all of a sudden this potential extension of one's career in this senior league is gone and literally not coming back. I got That's to think right. it was devastating to players, especially those who knew nothing more. 
than the sport of baseball for most of their adult lives. Well, it's 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 interesting. The Tampa Bay Rays had a 20th anniversary re- reunion at the Trop, where they invited all of us back, and we were just so thrilled to see each other. You know, some of them had become coaches. Dick Bosman had become a coach with the Rays, a pitching coach. Some of the others had become coaches. We had a catcher by the name of Butch Benton, who had been number one draft choice of the New York Mets. Um, And he had gotten hurt and never, ever made it to the Mets. But here was this kid. He was still, you know, just 35 years old. He wasn't very old. He was spectacular. He was a star. And after the season was over, he got an opportunity to catch with the Chicago Cubs on trip in AAA. But unfortunately, Major League Baseball didn't embrace the Senior League. Uh, they had made the mistake of making Kurt Flood the commissioner. And Kurt Flood, of course, was the guy who sued baseball. So it seemed to me, with I have no proof, but it just seemed to me that Major League Baseball decided none of these guys who played in the Senior League will ever play in the majors, even though some of them deserve to. Butch Benton was one of them. It would have been great if they had brought Butch Benton up to the majors just so that he could be able to say to his eight children, I'm a Major League ball player. But they didn't. Yet, in many respects, right? Giving Kurt Flood that job, right, was was frankly uh, a, a testament to 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 his will and what he was able to achieve, right? Obviously, longer term in retrospect, obviously, but well, that 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 certainly was one way to look at it. I mean, he was a name, and I guess Morley wanted a name, and Kurt Flood was somebody who had agreed to do it, but it was not smart. What they needed was the backing of Major League Baseball. If they had had the backing of Major League Baseball, that league might have survived, maybe. So in retrospect, why do you think that this idea hasn't come back since? I don't know. It's very interesting. As you notice that the XFL has come back. Except the first time, of course, you know, Trump submarined that by taking that, that whole league and going from the spring to compete directly against the NFL, which is the stupidest damn thing in the world, which ultimately made it fail. Um, why hasn't it happened? I'm, I'm not really sure. Yeah, I don't you, know. you wonder, right? Because, uh, you know, especially in this era of, of, of niche sports right. and programming and, and, and cable yep. and, and streaming and all that kind of stuff, you could make the argument that the economics are, you know, relatively straightforward and, and, and possibly uh, doable today. And, and arguably, the Major League Baseball might find that, you know, I, there's, I don't know, I, we talked about this. I on- don't think, I don't think Major League Baseball wanted the Senior League competing, you know, for fans, uh, money. I don't think they wanted competition from these guys. And I think the other reason it doesn't exist today is because back then, if the players were making, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, you know, they they would be more than willing to, to come to the senior league and take, you know, say $7,000 a month for four months. Guys are now making $20 million a year, $4 million a year, $10 million a year. 
They don't need the money. They don't need to do it. No, I, I guess I'm thinking more of, of the players that are, 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 are aging out uh, of, of the game. I mean, you talk about the XFL, right? Uh, that's a spring league, right, which is out of NFL right. season, right? So in the off season, right, if Major yeah. Baseball is looking for new revenues, right, you could, I don't know, ex- you're extending baseball as a sport. It is, is something to go see and enjoy in the off season. Yeah. You could you could commingle it perhaps with uh, fantasy camp stuff, right? Where it's a it, 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 there's there's it's almost experiential uh, that you know goes beyond. I you know you throw it well, out there. It depends. It depends yeah. what kind of league you want. You know, like you know, some of these teams thought they were going to be a fantasy fantasy camp like. They invited all the guys from the fantasy camps to come. Hey, let's go play ball, and they got clobbered. They just got clobbered. You know, the teams that, that set it up as professional baseball teams out to, you know, beat all the other teams, they won. So you got to decide, you know, what do you, you know, what's the league going to be like? And, and my suspicion is that you, in this senior league of 1989-90, we had stars. You know, we, we had John Matlack. We had Doc, Doc Ellis. I mean, we had some great, great players in this league. Every team had them. I don't think now, you know, today's great players who would be making, you know, say $15 million a year and who at the end of their careers have, you know, $75 million in the bank would want to come and play in November, December, January, and February for $5,000 a month. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. I mean, we're talking about an era even seemingly not too too distant, right, is, is, you know, the the pro sports is just of a certain – Higher level hate, and order of magnitude. I hate right? to tell you. I hate to tell you. Yeah. I hate to tell you. That was 31 years ago. Yeah, but still, I mean, but 31 years ago for sure. But you know, but in that in that seemingly short period of time, right, or long yeah. period of time, the business of pro sports is just it's it's on a, on a an exponentially different level now, right? And I think you're kind of hinting at it as to why maybe this idea, perhaps it was exquisitely timed and maybe sh- too short lived. But but uh, both of those. Yeah, it was amazingly successful, and I was really upset when they decided to screw with it. When they decided they wanted a team in Arizona and they wanted a team in California. Now maybe maybe the economics demanded that. I don't know. I wasn't privy to any of that. But once once they did that, it created serious financial problems. It really did. All right. Well, let me let me ask you this. So, so when when did the book itself come out? Had the league basically died before the book came out, or did it come out when it was oh, six oh, yeah. years underway? Okay. So it yeah. became almost an epitaph then for, for it uh, was. unwittingly, right? It was. If 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 the league if the league hadn't folded Christmas Day, if the league had continued through to February, say that book came out in March, so it would have been you know a tribute. To an existing league, but it didn't work out that way. It just so happened that uh, it folded uh, Christmas Day of 1990, and the book came out. Yeah, 1991. It came out in 1991 in March. Yeah, so I mean, not to get too publisher insider, but did it help or hurt the book? And and frankly, what was also the reaction of uh, of people reading and seeing in the book? Uh, positive, negative, or just? Had people kind of lost interest, or was it truly kind of a dancing on a grave kind of uh, feeling? I guess it was all of those. It was all of those things. 
Absolutely all of those things. Um, the people who love baseball and, and love the stories, love the book. Uh, the people who sort of laughed at the senior league, uh, which was a lot of the New York writers who came down the first couple of weeks. And, and of course, in the first couple of weeks, a lot of these players hadn't played in several years. And so they pulled leg muscles and they were not at the top of their game. And these, these New Yorkers came down and, and, you know, sort of ripped the thing to shreds. You know, who wants to watch a bunch of old men, which was really, you know, sort of rotten. You know, we resented them terribly for it. And, and you know, the book the, the book uh, did okay. I mean, I could it have done better had the league survived probably, but uh, it didn't work out that way. Is there any lasting sort of memory and or uh, story within all of this now, especially as you have 31 plus years now and in hindsight, uh, besides sort of, uh, you know, uh, some some uh, some nice memories and, and and a bit of wistfulness. I mean, was there any sort of lesson uh, either about life and baseball generally or about the league and 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 how maybe to or not to run a league or, or approach it or any things, any lessons that, you know, that you've sort of uh, uh, gleaned from this uh, this interesting little footnote in, in pro sports history that you happen to be literally in the midst of for a season. What I took from it more than anything else was the love these people had for the game and the love they had for their team. We were a very, very tight-knit group who all came to appreciate each other. These were guys, they all came from different teams. You know, they, you know Lenny Randall, who's this wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, he was one of the leaders of our team. And and we we would have you know meetings on the bus where they would all get together and uh, I had the opportunity to re- record a few of these meetings where um, oh they would laugh and talk and just it was it was like a family you know a good baseball team is like a family I mean I I play I still play softball here in St Petersburg we have something called the half century league I've been, this is my twenty fifth year. It's it's a league that goes from age 49 to 75. And, and you know, we have a 60-game schedule. We play 60 games a year. And you see these guys, you know, we play three games a week. And uh, guys get close. I mean, it's just something about baseball that way, which is just, you know, um, baseball is not a sport. Baseball is really a religion. It really is. It's very, very important. And... Um, all these guys who played for the St. Petersburg Pelicans, to them, it was was their whole lives. And I could see that. I felt the same way. All right. Well, let, let me ask you one sort of last sort of roundup question. And I think you're you're exquisitely positioned to, to, to answer it. I don't want to put you on the spot, but... Um, oh, you can put me on the spot. I don't care. All right. Well, we'll do that then. So uh, what of baseball in its current state? Ha- have we maximized... The amount of teams is is obviously we've got we're now as we record this sort of embroiled in in the the fiasco of the the Houston Astros <laughs> and all that kind of stuff and 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 you know we talked about big business and big bucks and and all of that and pro sports and and I, you know I don't know it, it in some respects you you know pro based- sports pro sports yeah. right now are quaking in their boots everybody's scared to death including Major League Baseball and they're scared to death. Because so many of these p- 
people who are 30 years old and under don't care about competitive sports. They don't care about baseball. They don't care about football. They don't care about hockey. They don't care about basketball. What they care about are video games. You see 25,000 people in Madison Square Garden watching four people fighting it out to be the video game champion of, you know, something warfare, whatever that, whatever that game is about warfare. I mean, these are millionaires. These, these kids are millionaires, 19-year-old millionaires, because they're fabulous video game players. And, and if you look, if you look in to see who is coming to Major League Baseball games, you do not see very many people who are under the age of 30. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Most of the people in the stands at, at the Trop are 50, 60, 70, 75. These, these are people who have loved baseball their whole lives and, and, and you know, cherish it and come to see it. Um, baseball doesn't know what to do about the fact that they're not getting the youth. They just don't know. No, no team does, and and that's the thing in the in in the future. You, you you keep an eye on, on that. I mean, teams are doing everything they can to try to draw young fans. Uh, they may be able to get the ten-year-olds. The question is, can they get the twenty-year-olds? That's going to be the difficulty. And the idea specifically of the Rays uh, splitting time in Montreal and 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 that. What what are your thoughts on that? Good luck. Yeah, I mean, it's good luck. It's, good luck. It's, you know, you want to do that? You want to do that? Fine. You want to do that? You want to ha- you want to pay for two stadiums? That, that that way you'll have two. You'll have Montreal fans and Tampa Bay fans. If you think you can do that, go ahead and do it. I, I just I, you know, I I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I I have been so fortunate. I I've, I've lived here. You know, after after the senior league, I I continued to live here. I've lived here since 1990. The Rays started playing in 1998. They were the Devil Rays, and they were terrible. But to have Major League Baseball in St. Petersburg, Florida, was a blessing. I didn't care if they won or they lost. My friend Ray Arsenault who's a professor here at USF. We would go to all the games. We would you know sit and watch the games. We didn't care if they won or lost. In a sense, we still don't care if they won or they lost. But, you know, we, we just always had the feeling that the ownership didn't much care for the fans. I don't know why that was. The, the, first, the first owner, uh, he, he, was, he was really terrible. Um, th- this owner, Stu Sternberg, is much, much better. Uh, but this is a guy who's always griping about attendance. You know, the guy's got $3 billion, and he's got a fabulous TV and radio uh, deal. Uh, I think they're the eighth biggest, uh, listenership and watch, you know, uh, TV viewership in the country of all the teams. And they're, they're still, you know, bitching and moaning that they're not getting enough fans to come to the games in St. Petersburg. And so they want to put their team in Tampa. So how does it make the St. Petersburg fans feel like, you know, they don't want us. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, attendance is, is an issue in pro sports generally as well, right? As people stay home and the big screens and all that kind of stuff. So, I, you know, the, it, 
there are some bigger issues there too, beyond just Tampa, St. Pete, and baseball in, in particular. Let me ask you one sort of final question. So, what uh, what fuels you? Uh, you know, and you're you have a just a litany of books. I mean, a literal library of of, of amazing stories and, and and great writings and stuff. And I and I take it you're still going strong. Uh, what what motivates you to continue to? Is it the stories? Is it the people? Is it the sport itself? What 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 are the things that kind of have motivated you through your career to be so prodigious with all your your great work, such as this one? Boy, boy, that is a very very good question. I, I think more than anything else is that I honestly am not capable of doing anything else. I think this is the only thing I know how to do. Does that make any sense no, at all? No, there's something to be said for that. And you know, and when you when you when you feel it's the only thing you know, you get really, really good at it. And then, God forbid, people enjoy what you do and are willing to pay a little princely sum for what you do. And I, that, that to me sounds like kind of perfection, I guess, when it comes to a career. Uh, I've had, you know, they talk about being blessed. I'm not a religious guy in any stretch of the imagination, but I've had an amazing life. I really have. And I, I've never, ever, ever taken that for granted. Never. You know, who would have guessed this This sports editor of the Dartmouth would have ended up with, you know, 60 books on his shelf. I don't know. I sometimes wonder. I'm looking at the books right now. I wonder, how the hell did that happen? Well, okie dokie. There we go. A great discussion, a great conversation. Peter and I could have gone on for weeks talking about this topic. And uh, the good news is that uh, Peter's got a whole bunch of books that gives us uh, further excuses uh, to hopefully have him back on the show. Uh, He's a prolific sports writer, and uh, we will have a link to uh, a little sort of mini section uh, of all the great books that he's ha- he has out there. But um, we uh, want to at least give you sort of the starter kit. Uh, and that is the book that we kind of talked about today around the Senior Professional Baseball Association. The book is called The Forever Boys, The Bittersweet World of Major League Baseball as Seen Through the Eyes of the Men Who Played One More Time. Now, you can get the original version sort of floating around out there. We'll have a link to that uh, in hardcover uh, from the uh, original uh, Birch Lane Press, but you may frankly enjoy the more uh, reissued and modern version uh, that is published uh, not only in paperback form, it's a little lighter to carry around, especially on the beach as you're roaming around, see on spring break perhaps, or maybe coming up this summer. It's published by Summer Game Books, and we'll have a direct link for that uh, as well on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com and just search up this episode with Peter Golenbach and you'll find it. And we'll also give you a gateway to uh, a whole bunch of some of his other books. Uh, again, The Bronx Zoo with Sparky Lyle, uh, Number One with Billy Martin, A Dynasty, The Oral History of the New York Yankees from 49 to 64, uh, The Oral History of the Brooklyn Dodgers called Bums, uh, on and on and on. Just an amazing array. American Zoom for you NASCAR fans and all kinds of other stuff. Peter Golenbach is a treasure trove uh, of great writing. And uh, hopefully, uh, if, you, if you've never read anything from Peter before, uh, Forever Boys will be a, a, a tremendous entree for you and, and a nice little supplement to this conversation. Uh, but hopefully it'll also be a gateway drug, shall we say, uh, for uh, lots of the other great stuff that Peter has written and probably will continue to write 
And uh, we look forward to having Peter back on this show. Gosh, we could talk about the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, that's an excuse. We'd like to talk about the St. Louis Browns, which we really haven't done yet. Uh, he's got a book that sort of uh, combines sort of the uh, histories of both the Browns and the uh, St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, so many other uh, excuses to uh, bring Peter back, and we look forward to doing just that. Uh, let's see. Uh, before we run, we want to remind you, as always, you can send us an email if you'd like. Do you like the show? Do you, you have uh, suggestions for other guests, uh, other leagues, teams, things we just haven't touched on yet that you're just you're chafing at uh, hearing more about? By all means, send us an email at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, we are more than happy and we love when we get email and uh, from all over the globe. It's 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 amazing where we get listeners from. I just uh, found out we had our first few listeners from Chile uh, just last week. So uh, we welcome the South American continent uh, to the growing legion of Good Seats Still Available listeners. Let's see. If you want to follow us on uh, social media, of course, we've got you covered there. Uh, on Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, you will find us at uh, on Instagram, of course, at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, and you'll also find a Facebook page devoted to us as well. We like to post a whole bunch of images and stuff for each week's show and, and all that kind of stuff. And we also like to send uh, a, uh, an email newsletter to you if you want to subscribe to that. Just go to the website uh, and find the link for the newsletter. It's very easy to do. Uh, and we'll send you a little note on uh, Saturday or Sunday each week, a little uh, you know, a little advance notice as to what's coming up in this week's episode. And frankly, you get a little bit of uh, an early link to uh, to listen to it before the hoi polloi uh, on the regular RSS uh, uh, feed there. So by all means, do that. And um, let's see what else. Oh, we, of course, want to say thank you. Uh, they're not yelling boo. They're yelling Jerry. Jerry. Of course, uh, that's Jerry Payne, the good doctor. Uh, down in uh, metropolitan Atlanta, and he is our producer extraordinaire. Uh, we, of course, cannot do this show without him. And uh, we, of course, tip our this week's baseball cap uh, in Jerry's uh, general direction. Thank you, kind sir. All right. We thank you, kind ladies and gentlemen, uh, for listening once again to our uh, our crazy little uh, show, our little obsession uh, into what used to be in professional sports. We look forward to uh, sharing another episode with you next week. And until then, we bid you a fond adieu. Take care, everybody. <laughs>